Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Sorry, guys, for the intermittent episodes over the last couple of weeks. As I discovered last year, it's difficult to schedule people around the holidays. And in the interim, by the way, uh, we picked up a lot of new listeners, thanks to a couple of uh, pretty prominent shout-outs. So thank you to David Litsky at uh, Fast Company Magazine for that, and uh, channeling Jimmy Durante here. Thank you to Startup L. Jackson, whoever you are. Welcome all new listeners, and you should know I usually aim for a new episode every Monday. So please subscribe, and you'll have dozens of great internet history topics in the year to come. And we've got a great one for you today as well. If you uh, remember episode 32, we explored the early digital media startups like Salon, Slate, Suck, Pathfinder, etc., And one site that was mentioned in that episode, but did not get a lot of detail, was Feed Magazine, aka feedmag.com or Feed. And the reason I couldn't go into much detail about Feed is because secondary sourcing about the website was difficult for me to come by 20 years on. And that's why I was absolutely delighted to make contact with Stephanie Simon. Stephanie, along with Stephen Johnson, was the co-founder of Feed. And in this episode, she recounts the wonderful time period early on when two freelance writers in New York could say to themselves, gee, why don't we just publish a magazine on the web? It's a great story of the early internet scene in New York City, and stay tuned to hear all of the people who cut their teeth at Feed and then went on to fabulous careers. Please enjoy this episode with... Stephanie Simon. Stephanie Simon, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. So we always, uh, in aid of this project, like to start with um, asking people a little bit about their tech background. But as I as I see that uh, you you graduated with a, a literature degree from Yale, I'm I'm curious, did you have much of a tech background um, when you when you left college or, or as a kid or anything like that? Um. No, I mean, I was kind of a math and science nerd as a young kid, and then I sort of ended up spending much more time in the humanities, and literature at the time that I was at Yale was much more like philosophy, so it was a lot of those French French literary critics, um, deconstruction and all of that. Um, however, the thing uh, that I was doing quite a bit of right before Stephen and I founded Feed was writing about technology, and I really... Uh, kind of quickly understood and wanted to write about and share with the world, obviously, how how much technology was really going to change everything and how much it was a culture story now, not just a business or a science story. And so I had, you know, I think I was comfortable doing that partly because I was, as a, a young kid, kind of a math and science kid. So in the, in the early 90s, you're, I guess, freelancing as, as a writer, a journalist, that sort of thing? Yes, I had um, left a documentary film company uh, in part because I decided that that industry was going to change so radically that a lot of the things people were being trained to do were going to be irrelevant. 
Um, and then I started writing about technology, freelancing around. I did a stint as a speechwriter for the, in the Dinkins administration. But by the time we were to uh, feed uh, taking off, um, I was at a column at the Wall Street Journal writing about technology and culture that was fairly regular and was writing for some other publications. So with as much or as little detail as you'd like, but I'd, I'd prefer more detail, um, tell me the story of how the idea of, of Feed came about. Well, so I should first tell you how Stephen Johnson and I were introduced. Absolutely. So um, this was, again, the early 90s. Um, uh, it was a college friend of mine and who happened to be a high school friend of Stephen's. Uh, and they said... Um, and I think we met at Max Fish, that bar in the East Village, but I'm not exactly sure when we first physically met. But the, the way we were introduced was that Eric Lifton, who introduced us, said, hey, you guys both have email. You should be email buddies. I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's how few people were online. I mean, and in any way, you know, it was still rare enough. So, you know, in the circle of very educated people who certainly all had personal computers, it, you know, we stood out. Um, so we became email buddies. Um, and I was joking with someone recently, I would love to see what we said on email to each other. <laughs> I, I have no memory. But um, so, and Stephen at the time was writing a uh, column that was similar to mine in terms of like looking at technology and culture for the London Guardian. So we were, we kind of had similar purviews. I think he may have technically still been in grad school at the time. Um, and I, as I was writing about technology and culture, and I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal about the web, you know, telling everyone, you know, explaining what the web was, it, it was pretty clear to me that I would eventually jump in and do something in digital media. I just didn't really know the, the how or the when. And so, um, Stephen being Stephen and, you know, sort of coming at the world with ideas nearly fully formed, although he won't say it that way. He was, I think, mulling over the same thing, and it was nearing, um, we were headed into a big election in 96, and he's thinking, you know, why don't we just do this as a web magazine? And so he kind of drafted a sketched out what feed might be, uh, you know, Microsoft Word doc, and he shared it with all the trends. And most of them was like, oh, great idea, Stephen, you'll never do it. And I was like, yeah, this is about what I'm looking for. This is like what, this, this kind of checks all the boxes. Uh, when do we get started? So um, that's pretty much how it happened. Mm -hmm. And neither of us knew how to code, um, but HTML was really easy to learn. I mean, it was dead simple at the time. And, and so simple, you really couldn't do much visually with it at all. And so we had to create all these weird hacks to lay out a page that looked at all inviting to the reader because what we really both committed to was this notion that the web wasn't just a place for lists and little tiny chunks of content and kind of information. It was actually a place where you could find good, thoughtful writing. And we also, I think, wanted to in some way balance out some of the techno-utopianism of Wired Magazine, which launched in 93, mm -hmm. which... I loved why early wired was amazing. And I remember the bus ads that just had the name of the magazine that went by. And like, I remember seeing those ads and knowing it was going to be something interesting and important. Um, but you know, it was, I, I'm from California, but it's that California, you know, go too far in the optimistic 
you know, Messiah direction of technology. And I felt, and we felt there was room to be enthusiastic or critical. Um, and also room for, you know, a new voice um, around other stuff. Uh, and I think we were, I think, very inspired by Spy Magazine, too, as sort of the, the sort of humor and the wit um, and the, you know, sort of not having really, really wanting to challenge certain ways of both writing and uh, approaching certain subjects. So, um in addition to having this great opportunity around the election coming up. Um, so it, God, it didn't take us long. I mean, I think we met, I remember it being, I feel like it was November of 94 when I read Stephen's proposal for feed. Um, and we launched the site six months later, but I don't, I honestly don't remember how much effort or energy we're devoting to it. Uh, you know, certainly close to it. I think a lot of it was, signing up writers and convincing our friends to contribute because that was going to be the issue. Like the coding was not too hard and we could do it ourselves. Um, the graphics, we found a guy to do, but we wanted to have enough content to launch with something that looked uh, substantial. And um, fortunately we were, you know, we were all really young. We weren't that far out of college and we had a bunch of friends who were trying to make it as writers, um, which is funny to think of now because so many of them are, such successful uh, writers, but you know, no one was assuming they were ever going to get promotion in the New Yorker or any any other place of, of repute. You know, I mean, maybe here or there, people were still pretty early, early in their careers and still really hustling. So, um, one of those people was Sam Lipsight, who is a great fiction writer and a hilarious nonfiction writer. And I believe we launched with um, his. Story memoirs of an info info whore, or inf, um, which was his account of being in an infomercial, and it is still one of the funniest pieces of writing I've ever read. Um, and you know, we also started thinking about creating conversation online, and so not too soon after launch, started really setting up these dialogues with big thinkers. Um, and I remember. You know, you know. I think it was even in that first year we did a dialogue. Stephen, Stephen remembers sequence way more than I do. Uh, I think we did a dialogue. We did one on like feminism and one on tech, and we we would reach out to like Kathy Pollock, who was already very established, or David Gelertner, you know, who's a big deal. And we'd be like, "Hi, we're starting. You know, just started this online magazine. Would you come and have a dialogue about this topic? And we're going to bring in some other thinkers." And they would say yes. We were always shocked. <laughs> we were like, we're no one. Like, they don't, we're, like, we're not the New York Times. We're not uh, Esquire. We are not even wired. And yet people wanted to participate. And it was very gratifying. Um, and exciting. Well, you, you um, were, you were very early on the web. So I feel like that, you know, your, your, your moment was perfect because people are wanting to experiment with this new thing that they're suddenly hearing about all the time. And, and you're there to, to, to experiment with. Yes. Yes, and I do think that's absolutely right. Um, and 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 there was enough up there to give people a sense of kind of how we came at things. And I guess we, um, you know, seemed legitimate enough when you read what was already up there um, and smart enough. Um, uh, so the other thing that happened, though, which sort of surprised us, was we did hire a publicist um, 
you know, kind of, you know, and again, this is all our first company, you know, we've both gone on to help create other companies. So it was all kind of bumbling and we kind of knew what we were doing and mostly had no clue whatsoever. Um, and we hired a publicist that we stuck with for a while and, um, it wasn't always clear if it was his efforts or just being early, but really quickly people started writing about us. And so I remember, I think it was 96 that Walt Mossberg wrote this really glowing piece about us. And that I think really put us on the map because he was, again, you know, Walt Mossberg is an institution at this point, but at the time, even then, even 20 Mm. years ago, he was, really a well-known and well-regarded tech reporter. Walt um, Mossberg has always been Walt Mossberg in a way. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, so we kind of, you know, got a surprising amount of press. And we, at, I mean, we were very grateful for it. Um, but we also thought it was really funny because some of, some of the accounts of what we were doing just sounded so aspirational. So I, I think the one that really tickled both Stephen and I one of the early ones was a write-up in Wired. So it was said something about like, you know, uh, oh, I know, I don't know where it was, but there was, there was one that said, you know, Wired meets the New Yorker. And we were like, hell yeah. And then there was one, <laughs> there was one write-up that said, the East Coast literary establishment comes to the web. And we're like, uh, yeah, we are working out of our apartment. You know, we are, you know, we're published authors, but not really. <laughs> All of uh, many of the contributors are totally green still. Uh, so it, you know, it's funny what people project onto you, but obviously useful fiction. Um, I think in some of them we lived up to. Um, so, so those first years, um, you know, I think the first year we were working out of our apartment. By you know what? Can I can I stop you for a yeah, second? And because there's a couple please. of. Um, kind of nuts and bolts questions that I have. Um, and yep. first of all, going all the way back, you know, when I talk to people, uh, uh, people early on the web, it's always about this It's new thing that comes about and what can you do with it? Some people want to sell yep. things on it and stuff. But a lot of people have said, well, the most obvious thing was it was a publishing platform, right? So essentially your idea is to just take what is a magazine and put it online. Is that, is that, was that basically original you know, vision? I mean, yes, insofar as we thought it was a place for really high-quality, thoughtful content, but Mm. no, insofar we wanted to innovate beyond a magazine. And so um, it took us a while, but then we were really early to have threaded comments against every piece of content. Mm -hmm. Um, Our dialogues were, were, you know, took place over time, and so episodic, so people were posting. So that is somewhere between uh, more almost of an interview podcast format and a regular straight publishing format because you you can add an installment in right. almost real time. Um, well, put put a pin so, in that because because uh, I will come back to it. But I'm curious how how influenced were you by the early '90s zine scene? <laughs> because definitely, you know, definitely in there, definitely in there. Okay, because you were called webzines. This is before the yes. blogs and things like that, and. Yes. But I also think we were, were constantly experimenting with what the link meant and mm-hmm. how, how much to weight it. And you also have to remember, there was so little else online. And the technology was really primitive. So in a way, all you could do was publish text, link to it, and you're kind of done. I mean, then comments happened, um, and there's a, the more social dimension kind of came a little bit later. But even at launch, that was 
uh, it was almost like two universes. You had the echoes of the world and the place where people were talking to each other, the BBSs, and then the web, which was more about linking and content. Mm -hmm. Okay, another really basic question. Um, sure. How are you funding this? <laughs> are you just funding um, it yourselves? Who, who's paying for the computers, for the, the web servers, that sort of thing? Right, and there is um, probably a funny story that I could tell now. Um, so it wasn't very expensive because, you know, all the feed fit on two floppy disks when we launched, and I can tell you why I know this. And so, uh, you know, I think um, really all we were paying for at the beginning was um, uh, a little bit of server, you know, space. We got a deal on it, um, and then writers, and we did not pay writers well at the beginning. You know, we, over time we paid them better, but at the beginning we just we paid them much more modestly. Um, Stephen, I think, funded the beginning of it uh, completely, and then, but we did do friends and family. So, I that's not true. It was friends and family. So Stephen could put could invest a little bit, and he can just speak more to it. Mm. He always was more on the fundraising side. So it was a friend, friends and family. Um, and and then you... over time, we, we uh, I mean, the investor, Chris Anderson, who now runs TED, and Esther Dyson ended up being investors. Okay. So, uh, you know, we eventually added some real investors. Um, and as we got press, I mean, we were approached by a ton of people, mm -hmm. most of whom we couldn't, tell a convincing story to them or to ourselves about it being this massive business. Because we understood, I think we, I think we always understood that the feeds of the world were kind of niche content that could grow as part of a bigger ecosystem, but we couldn't look a straight face say, this is going to be a 50 million top line business. I mean, no one was on the web. The audience is tiny. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we, we saw that and we saw that it would be, um, dishonest and not true to our vision to present it as more than what it was. Okay. So you mentioned vision. And so that this is the last of my sort of uh, nuts and bolts questions for, yeah. for the benefit of people that didn't have the chance to uh, read feed. What was your editorial focus? Like what, what are you covering uh, in terms of topics and, and, and stuff like that? Yeah. So we were, we were actually pretty general interest. And I think the thing, that distinguished us is we were generous, but we had a lot of focus on technology. And then early on, there was a lot, fair bit of political coverage because the election, and that was when Gingrich was doing his thing um, and making noise about all of the things. And now I'm trying to remember, there were some really hilarious manifestos. I think he had a manifesto and up, coming up to the 96th election. Um, so it was technology, politics, and culture. Um, we really, again, were wide-ranging. A lot of it, I think, what set us apart was, one, as a general interest magazine, d dedicating a fair bit on culture to the medium, obviously. And three, you know, we were um, we were not afraid to be opinionated and have a lot of voice because, honestly, we didn't have a huge reporting budget, so we couldn't send people out into the field to, like, do anything really exciting. But what we could do was come at things with a fresh angle and a kind of fresh voice. Um, I don't know how snarky I would find the voice now where I'd read a lot of it. I don't think it was too snarky. It was a little snarky. <laughs> well, that's sort of, uh, like you said, the, the East Coast versus West Coast uh, attitude kind of. Yeah. You know, and then we, again, we were young and we poked fun at things. And, um, you know, so in that way, we, I think, cleverness got us 
far given the budgetary constraints, I would say. Um, You had mentioned that basically what you did is you just reached out to friends that were young writers like yourselves (laughs) to to produce this content. I'm going to list some names because you you said a lot of them have gone on now 15, 20 years later to great careers. I'm going to list some names, but um, when I'm done, please add more um, names that might come to mind in terms of people that have gone on to have amazing careers like Anna Marie Cox, uh, Clay Shirky. I didn't know Josh Marshall um, did some writing for you guys. Um, Yep. Steve Botto, who Steve was, Botto, Botto, yeah, was he the is he was he the executive producer of the Daily Show eventually or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. That, go go on and, and name anyone. Yeah. Else. Um. So John Cook, who's a big editor at Gawker, did a little stuff for us. Did some stuff for us. So some of them are writers and some of them are editors. Um. Uh, Alex Abramovich, Alex mm-hmm. Roth, mm-hmm. uh, who's a longtime New Yorker writer. Christine Keneally, who's uh, had a really nice nonfiction science nonfiction career. Um, Amanda Griscom, who actually has a piece in the New Yorker, it just a recent piece in the New Yorker on New Yorker online. Um, Sam Lipsight, as I, as I mentioned before, who else? Um, others will come to my, Oh, Catherine Schultz, mm. who's had, who, who had a great book on being wrong and who's a New Yorker writer now. Mm-hmm. Um, There'll be others that, that right. come to mind. But it's, you know, I mean, I've been, I, I, oh, Elaine Blair was an editor for us, and she's a book reviewer for the Times and um, New York Review of Books and and super, you know, talented. So many, many people. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So let's get into the details of how this is, how this is a business and how this is a, a publishing entity. I mean, you, you guys are just hard coding this, right? Like you, you said, you you, yeah. you taught yourself HTML, so there's no there's no such thing as a CMS or anything like that. Oh you, God, no, 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 no. You're just and there's no CSS, there's no styling. To create a left hand margin, we had to insert an invisible GIF. I remember, like a transparent I remember that. GIF. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And 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 so if you had to make a copy of it, you'd screw up the whole layout. It was like liner type age, you know. You'd have to recode everything. And the when you when you launch, I guess there's no real publishing schedule. But I'm, I'm thinking about how all this stuff evolves into the online publishing world that we know today. Like, did you have a publishing schedule? Did you were you like, all right, we'll have something new every Monday? How how did that sort um, of functional right. thing evolve? Right. Well, at the beginning, it was you know we. You know, we, you know, and we kept our day jobs or, you know, other stuff for a while. So at the beginning, it was just as soon as we could get something else up, <laughs> the publishing schedule. And then as we grew, um, we hired editors and, and got on a much more regular publishing schedule. And eventually, we created something called The Filter, which we originally called The Filter, which evolved into The Daily, which was essentially a blog post. And so what it was... Um, was we would take a little um, quote from another media source, and often because it was so early, I mean this was this this feature uh, or column launched early in feed, I think with the the launch of the of the site in in 90, May of ninety five, um, we would have to actually create a little scan of this quote 
And like it was an image because the, the publication from which it was derived was not yet online. And so to have a, to comment on other media at that time was often to have to like, you couldn't just simply link to it is the point, you know, you'd have to kind of create this funny hack. Um, that column then would, you know, spend a three or four paragraphs with some sort of witty commentary on some media happening or some newsy thing. That became the daily, which was a daily, you know, really kind of quick hitting, um, clever column. And Clay Shirky actually, you know, has, has said some things about how like writing that column really taught him a lot because you had to be so tight. Um, every single word counted. You kept the word counts brief on purpose. Really? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was intended to be like the super quick digestible content that you would read every day. So people would come back to the site and it did worked that way and we did get them up every single day and um you know amanda griscom was a total taskmaster in making that happen um so there was some stuff like that that was obviously quite frequent um and then we'd have bigger features that you know we'd roll out one a week i mean i can't quite remember i know there was some stuff again on that daily timetable then other stuff that was weekly and then packages that would be you know at a less regular interval um but, you know, by year two, we were publishing in a pretty steady clip. Well, uh, let's talk about making money then. Because, it, again, yes. as, if you're in the early days where there's no such thing as a CMS, you're hard coding everything, you're also in the early days of advertising. I mean, you, you're launching in 95, so um, Hotwired had already started its banner ads experiment. Uh, there was already people experimenting with advertising. Um but when you guys do it, uh, was it difficult? <laughs> how did how did you do it? Um, I don't even think like would would double click have been around at that point. Were there any? How did no. you get ads? Um, so, well, the first thing to say is that we for a, quite a while, and it started in I think it started in ninety seven. Were the New York bureau chief for Hotwired zero uh, New York bureau of Hotwired, and so Austin Bunn was feeding stories to Hotwired, and we had to deal with them. I cannot remember the business terms, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you would it would just be direct insertion order type stuff, and you just code the banner into your site um, or drop it into your site. Uh, we were, you know, we raised additional capital because there really wasn't a big business, and it depended on audience, and the t- uh, web audience was tiny. I mean, we were doing well, and we had a devoted following. But I think that was always the challenge of... Um, balancing, being able to scale revenue when even if you're killing it, your your total addressable market is still relatively small. And so um, by the time we were into the later 90s, we hired someone who run this dev who was selling ads and doing partnerships. But even selling out our site, um, we couldn't cover our costs, honestly, because again, we had healthy traffic, but we didn't have a fire hose. Uh, some of our competitors were positioned, you know, I don't know if you remember the launch of Slate, but um, mm-hmm. Microsoft was driving a huge amount of traffic to them. So all of our traffic was, you know, organic audience. Um, and so it was very difficult to scale that at the time. Um, we knew some of the tricks, of the, you know, if you got a link on Flashdot, you, we joke, there was a, I don't know if you remember this, you, you would be Flashdotted and you could, yeah. your site would come down. Right, right. Uh, under the weight of the traffic. Um, but that was always a challenge. And so um, you may or may not remember, we set up in 
I think we started working on it in 99, um, a network of sites, of independent sites, to sort of consolidate business operations. Is that, and That's automatic media? Yes. Yes. So that was us stuck, um, alt culture, and then we launched Plastic out of that. I don't know if you remember Plastic mm-hmm. at all. We'll, we'll, um, we'll, get, we'll put a pin in that one also because we'll come back to Plastic in a second. Go on. Um, so, so, so scanning the the environment, it seemed sort of obvious that one way to get to a sustainable business model was, you know, consolidate business operations across more sites. You know, to have the traffic, the virtuous circle of traffic through them, and then you get some scale. Um, which is, and we did it. You know, so so that's when we teamed up with those guys. Um, of course, the challenge was we were. I think we were probably starting to think about it in 99, but in terms of really getting to, well, no, maybe even a little sooner. But it required, required an additional infusion of capital, and we raised that capital, but, like, closed that round of financing. It took six months longer than we had anticipated, um, in part because your, uh, the uh, main, the lead investor was Lycos. Uh, right, your right. listeners may know, the search engine, one of the yeah. early search engines. And we were doing that, raising that money, Right, and Lycos was, you know, investing in the, this rolled-up kind of media network right as they were being sold to the Spanish company. Mm-hmm. And so it just delayed, it dragged out that that deal for um, for quite a number of months. And then by the time the money came in, we were in, you know, I think it was already spring of 2000, and everyone knows what happened then. It was a bloodbath. Right, right. Um, before before we get to to plastic, I, this is more of a comment than a question. But mm-hmm. um, you know, w- when we think of online media today, you guys are existing in the late '90s in an era that's not only before uh, social media as a driver of traffic, but you're actually functionally before search has been solved. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So yes. like we were pre Google. We were pre Google. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. It, it had to be that your biggest problem was discovery. Aside from the fact that the audience isn't as yes. big as it is now. There yep, weren't as many absolutely. people online. But discovery had to be one of your biggest problems. Yes. Yes. And that's why earned media was so great at the beginning because that's how people found out about us. Um and then it was, you know, again, you know, getting links from Slashdot I think there were some other sites we knew that we were linked from, but it definitely became harder also as there were some, you know, kind of similar sites out there and it got a little bit more crowded. Um, and the value of having a Microsoft, you know, with their Explorer driving traffic to a site was inestimable. Um, we felt very disadvantaged in the face of Slate. Right, because they not only have um, a backer with with a, a big wallet, but also yes. they, they can just feed traffic on uh, exactly. any amounts of traffic, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, there's I I respect those guys now, but we felt you know we 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 should have figured that out. Obviously, we had no we had no connections to those companies, uh, really. I so, mean, I do remember Yahoo being a list of links, and mm-hmm. anyway. Well, you mentioned Slashdot, and you, and you mentioned um, we. I mentioned social media, but um, so plastic. I have much more of a memory of plastic, uh, and plastic was something that you launched after Automatic was created, um, and and you're combining forces with Suck and and things like that. 
And this is where you are starting to see some kind of early social media elements yep. entering things. Yes. So describe, yes. describe for people what Plastic.com was. So um, we were, you know, we really took this sort of slash dot model where you are, have, um, and this is before blogs. This is well before blogs. So where you have people contributing stories or being able to contribute a story and that it being upvoted or downvoted and, um, you know, commented on. And as a contributor, there were like levels of participation that was graded uh, in terms of what your permissions were and what, what you could do on the site. And you would get, we call them karma points for being a good kind of community member and contributing contributing great content and also like behaving well. And um, so it was kind of like, read it but not as the behavior that we were trying to promote was much more positive than uh, what seems to have happened in many domain you know many areas of reddit and it was really focused more on on pop culture not technology so we thought like you could use that model and have this like fun community around pop culture it wouldn't exclude technology but flash out was pretty pretty um uh, propeller had it uh, focused and and really spoke to the community of the growing community of developers. Um, so this was going to be more of a people who are into pop culture, and I was just remembering some of the ads. They were really funny, um, uh, and I wish I had the copy. Like I remember bits of the copy, but they were like kind of in your face, copy wise, and we launched it right as everything was kind of coming undone because, you know, our, our, our money ran out essentially. And, um, it, it actually for the brief, I mean, brief moment it existed, there was quite a bit of participation and, and, um, excitement about it, but alas, the ti- the timing was poor. <laughs> yep. Um, you, you made me think of something that, that we, uh, skipped over. Um, this community and commenting and and audience feedback and things like that um going back to feed um you said that you had from the very beginning you had comments and things like that or or, or not um we had at first it was the a link and literally it was called this is embarrassing the feed bag <laughs> like with a horse and a little image of a horse <laughs> so, um and you could use that to submit feedback. And I'm trying to remember how it was displayed, but at some point um, early in our history, because it was before, I know it was before 98 because of where our offices were. It was when we had offices way down at 11 Broadway. We hired this guy, Erwin Chen, who built us, coded us threaded comments. And that we were one of, and and we would allow people to comment on every single piece of content. It wasn't some sort of general content comment Mm. section. It was Mm -hmm. every piece of content. And it was interesting to watch the trends because we could publish. It was, we always knew when we would get a lot of comments. Tech stories tend to generate a lot of comments, almost no matter what the the kind of angle was. And then um, uh, real opinion, you know, polemical pieces would generate a lot of comments, you know, not so surprisingly, but at the time it was surprising because we would also publish these beautifully written, thoughtful pieces that were just lovely and smart and great pieces of writing, zero comments or like two comments. And it was interesting how people didn't feel as invited into the conversation when the writing was at a certain level and not about something that was just triggered an immediate like opinion reflex. 
And in general, comments skewed more negative. So it's just like how, from the beginning, internet comments have worked. The people mm-hmm. who had positive things to say either didn't say, you know, like just didn't feel as compelled to say it. They might have thought it, you know, that was a fabulous piece or that was a good point. But they didn't feel like that urgency to get their their voice into the mix. So I, I want to close with a couple of multi-part questions here, but just kind of looking back questions. And, you know, you mentioned that, that plastic was poorly timed because the, the, the bubble was bursting and, and, and feed, uh, you know, had a limited life and, and even, you know, slate and salon, you know, they're still around, but um, these early content sites on the web always were struggling for revenue and, and, and things like that. But it kind of looks to me looking back and I wonder if you agree that, Look, it was just too early. I mean, people yeah. forget that oh, yeah. people forget that yeah. when the, when the dot com bubble bursts, there's still only maybe a hundred million people online. So, like you know, today yeah. when there's billions of people online, it's easier to survive and get a large enough audience to survive. Do, do you agree with that? Absolutely. And in some ways, I think it's kind of a curse to be too early because you clearly see what's going to happen, but you you're you can't actualize it. So I remember very clearly having many conversations and saying, no, 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 there's going to be all sorts of advertising on the web. Like, you don't understand. This is happening. And people being super skeptical. And it's true. There might have been some ads on the web, but there weren't enough people to make that a scaled business. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's painful as an entrepreneur to be too early. Because, you know, you kind of, you're like, yeah, we called that one, but it didn't matter. Would you call Comment for me a little bit about what we've talked about or touched on uh, in terms of the voice, and and we've already mentioned snark, I think, a couple times. But um, the idea that what has become the voice of blogs, the voice of online content that we know, um, came out of things like feed and and things like um, suck and and mutated almost into into yeah. things like Gawker yeah. and things like that and 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 how how where that voice came from and and how it survived maybe yeah um you know if you think back to what was going on besides the internet at the time I mean this was the early 90s so we were in a recession people forget 91 was a big recession mm-hmm. um, my generate Gen X came out of college many of us into a recession which means, um, you know, like, I didn't know, I mean, I th- I'm sure there were some people who went to law school or professional schools, but a lot of people who would have ordinarily gotten on a career track were kind of still a little bit aimless at age 25, you know, and hadn't really found their thing yet. And so, in some ways, we were all kind of available. Like, the, the risk that we were taking was um, perhaps smaller or less, obvious than it might have been if the economy had been absolutely booming in the early 90s and we had all found great jobs. So in a way, the fact that we were still in this softer economy, um, creatives that those businesses weren't kind of sucking us into the, you know, in completely yet, um, made us, oh, remember Slacker, the movie Slacker. I mean, what no one talks about is like, yeah, we were slacking because we couldn't find great jobs. <laughs> you know, it's not like we just kind of wanted to hang out. I mean, certainly there was some of that, but a lot of it was just, you know, things were shifting in terms of the macroeconomics. And so that was the context aid, 
people forget. Mm-hmm. Like we were coming of age, age with the AIDS crisis, and that really put a, a dystopian kind of um, cast on things. And so I think uh, George Bush uh, Senior was in office in '91. Um, we were coming into the Clinton years when things started to shift, but I mean. It took him two terms to really create all that wealth, um, which you might even argue with. So, so I think there was just a overall kind of view that, like, the way things had been working was not working out, really not working out. And so, call it cynicism, call it youth, um, um, and a lot of us in terms of how, you know, we had read all these, like, Marxist thinkers, you know, whether or not we really consider ourselves in any way aligned with them. Um, we were coming at culture from a somewhat critical perspective, but also couldn't take ourselves too seriously and wanted to have fun. And so there was a playfulness, too, um, that that combined with that critique of, you know, sort of post-industrial society. Mm-hmm. Uh, two final questions, uh, both based on the fact that, um, you know, it, over the last 15 years, you've, you've sort of stayed in the game, as it were, you know, as a consultant and, and you know, launching other uh, uh, digital native content companies and things like that. The, the first question would be, what what do you think of the the publications that have digital native publications that have risen up in the last few years, I'm thinking of things like Vox, the verge, Buzzfeed, things like that. Obviously they have the advantages that you, we, we've already said you didn't have Uh, advertising is mature. The the audiences are bigger. Um, What do you think about these companies and, and, I don't know. Is it just, are you a little jealous? Like you said, as the, as the early bird that they're succeeding where you didn't have the chance to. Um, well, not jealous. I mean, I think I'm gratified that people have, to some extent, figured it out. I think there are a couple things going on. One is um, the Internet really has devalued the role of the writer uh, in terms of the economics and many creatives. And I know Stephen's written a big piece about the music industry that challenges that. But I think in terms of pure writing, it changed industry dynamics so much. You could be a mid-list author and have a nice middle, upper-middle-class living uh, send your kid to good schools 20, 30, 40 years ago, you cannot do that now because what you get paid to write is a fraction of what you used to get paid to write. So I think I'm ambivalent about that. So that's a, a sort of an unfortunate sort of unintended consequence mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. of this whole rise of web media. And and I do think about that, you know, that we were part of making that happen and, and, I don't know what what point it will shift. I think eventually it will shift because you do see in the history of media these uh, moments of explosion and then contraction. And so, you know, from my research on the book I wrote, you know, there were 40 English language dailies um, in New York City in like 1910 or 11, which is kind of unimaginable. But now you have that on the web. You know, that contracted into a handful of -hmm. of newspapers. So, you know, I think there are cycles. So, um, but it's, it's kind of fun to watch the evolution. I, you know, I think some of the, some of the snarkiness and mean spirited dimensions of media, they get kind of amplified so much. I find disturbing. I think the opportunity to really kind of stalk and attack people, like all the stuff going on Gamergate is totally depressing. Mm-hmm. I think the, where, what I think about a lot more is the gender balance around 
not so much the media dimension, but just the general startup ecosystem and, and on the VC side, um, which is, you know, mind-numbingly awful. Especially um, on the VC side, yeah. Yeah, but still even on the startup. And it's, it's, the VC side is bad partly because the startup side is bad. So more women founders are getting funded, but it's still a, a vanishingly small fraction of, of total activity. Uh, final question, similar to that last one, but um, looking at the the landscape right now, not in terms of business, but in terms of quality of writing, um, and uh, online, you know, digital native uh, publications, quality of writing. You know, I'm thinking of mm-hmm. places like Longform, the Atavis, the All, places like that. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you think of the current state of of writing in the in the digital realm? Well, I wish I say more about that because I was reading all that stuff, but um, I'm sadly not, I'm, I'm not reading that kind of writing right now because I'm actually about to take a new job, okay. which requires uh, requires uh, a just slightly different focus. But I mean, I think it, there's great stuff out there um, in general. Um, so I think you can find it. I still don't think the business model problem has been fully solved. I mean, it's been solved for now, kind of but in a not terribly sustainable way, as far as I can tell. Uh, well, Stephanie Simon, thank you for telling us this story uh, <laughs> and remembering all, the, all that great stuff um, at the beginning of, of Digital Media on the Web. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.